An alleged attack on the campaign trail. Now our teachers ask, how are they supposed to talk about fighting when politicians apparently can't control themselves? Are other social norms changing too? Plus, the story of a pregnant teen barred from walking at her graduation goes viral. Our teachers talk about the pitfalls schools must navigate when accommodating pregnant students. Finally, our teachers look back on this past school year and the students that changed them for better and worse. Those topics plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned public radio journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers, maybe not as hardworking as they were a couple of weeks ago, but they are ready to talk, so let's introduce them. Greg Brenner, what do you teach? teach uh, social studies at a high school. And are you on summer break yet? I am not <laughs> on summer break. Just want to show, throw that out there. No, not on summer break. Don't sound bitter at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamie Myers, what do you teach? I teach applications now yeah. at a middle school, eighth grade. And really quickly, what does applications mean? You might know better than I do. I will be focusing on writing, though. Okay. And are you on summer break? I am since May 17th. And Jason Staliga, what do you teach? Honors and Advanced Placement Science at a local high school. I am on summer break. Day three, <laughs> actually day four. Nice. Yes. Um, as Jason may have alluded to, we uh, they are all three public school teachers in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. One of the biggest news stories of the past week took place in Montana. That's where Greg Gianforte won a special election for an open seat in the U.S. House. That wasn't the news so much as what happened the night before the vote. After a reporter for the British newspaper The Guardian asked him a question, about the Republican health care plan in Washington and a score for that bill released by the Congressional Budget Office. Gianforte allegedly body slammed the reporter, Ben Jacobs, breaking Jacobs' glasses. Gianforte was charged with misdemeanor assault. He still won the race handily. Bear in mind, nearly half the vote was already in via early ballots before the alleged assault occurred. Now, Gianforte did apologize the next night during a victory speech, though we should say only after releasing a statement the night of the alleged incident that essentially blamed the reporter for being too aggressive. But Gianforte the next night did apologize, said, quote, I made a mistake and I took an action that I can't take back and I'm not proud of what happened. I should not have responded in the way that I did. And for that, I'm sorry. Still, some voters seem to think Gianforte did not need to apologize. In fact, if you Watch his victory speech. You can hear some in the crowd start to boo or catcall when he starts to apologize. One voter, quoted by Fox News, said the incident had not affected his vote for Gianforte. Quote, if somebody is sticking a phone in your face over and over and you haven't really done that, I can't. I can see where it might make you a little angry. Other lawmakers on both sides of the aisle condemned the incident. House Speaker Paul Ryan said there's never a call for a physical altercation. Some voters said the incident was a turnoff. Others said Gianforte should be presumed innocent until proven guilty. Well, I will say this whole incident as a journalist bothered me for obvious reasons, but it also bothered me a bit as a former teacher. It's one of those things in teaching. It's kind of a given, I guess. You teach your kids to not fight to not resolve their problems with violence, that it's not acceptable to physically harm, touch, or abuse another person. That goes hand-in-hand with the idea of teaching kids to be civil, respectful, communicative with their problems. And this incident made me think, for teachers in schools now, have those norms and other norms, in fact, changed? Have you guys been thinking about this? What's your response to this incident and how it affects your outlook on what you teach and tell students? Well, in general, I've seen an increase in... Not just violence, but the okayness of students being able to say racist things. The year ended with a young lady 
starting a fight and missing the last three days of school, and she was kind of proud of it. She totally blindsided another young lady, yanked her to the floor by her hair and just wailed on her. And I can't blame, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily blame what's going on in broad society, but I can't discredit it either because I work in a district that is fairly conservative and, you know, that type of behavior might be okayed or condoned at home. I can't say one way or another necessarily, but it seems to have increased. We've, we had incidents in the sixth grade where we had a student say, go pick cotton like your ancestors. And he, I think got maybe ISS. I mean, it's just like these kiddos think that it's okay to treat others terribly. And I don't know where like that line was crossed, where they were told it was okay to treat people that way. Well, to have you reflect a little bit, I mean, so you've taught in this district at this school for a while now. Um, how many years? This is my ninth year ninth, at the same uh, district. Yeah. So is, uh, on reflection, is that the, the types of incidents you're talking about, is that a, a recent change? Is there, is there an increase it in has your been, opinion? It, it has increased. I didn't see fights very often at all until the last three or four years. And you know, we took kiddos on a field trip and I said, this has been so great. You guys, you know, have been great. Well, the young lady that started the fight wasn't there. And, you know, another kid reflected saying, well, the ones of us that are here all like each other, you know. So it's, I don't know if it's just a few insular events where, you know, the parents, I I don't know what the problem is, but I have seen an increase, at least in my district. And we're mostly rural, mostly Caucasian so, Greg, Jason, what are your reflections? In my school, mostly urban, uh, we didn't have a fight until second semester. <clears throat> so for us, we've actually seen a decline in the number of school fights over the last year. And I don't know that that I think part of that really goes into our focus on PBIS, mm-hmm. positive behavior intervention strategies, <clears throat> and really working with our kids in order to promote uh, positive behaviors versus negative behaviors. And we've seen um, a number of increases in what we call pride passes, which are for positive actions. And we've seen a a great decrease or decline in the number of referrals that have been sent to the office. It's funny, since I teach at a a majority Hispanic school, like 90 percent, 95 percent Hispanic, um, Trump is the villain. And so he's almost the anti-role model. Um, if a kid is acting up in class, just pull him aside. It's like, dude, you're acting like the president. And kid's like, oh, oh my, my bad. I'm sorry. Um, you know, calm down. And, and that works. And, and, that, and that seems to work because yeah. he is. He's seen like the, you know, the bad guy. No one wants to be like that. So, you know, there is that kind of, I guess, um, net gain out of, out of a seemingly uncivil behavior. But it just got me thinking also, we don't look at um, musicians or actors or uh, athletes as paragons of virtue. Why do we look? Maybe we shouldn't look at politicians the same way. Um, I, it makes me think of, of Trump's time in the WWE. It's it's uh, almost a positive that you know, for some people, um, the way that Trump um, acts because it it they see it as as being tough. I, I would say I'm a little surprised to hear a history teacher say that. You don't think politicians should be held to a a higher standard of behavior yeah, and decorum. Yeah, and, and maybe that's that's part of me just thinking back and, and how ugly politi- politi- politics has always been. And maybe we, we, we have this the blinders of, of history on that we, we tend to, like, say, man, if only it was like that, you know, we were back in the past. You know, looking at the past as, like, some type of weird golden age where politicians actually didn't sleep with other women, you know, that weren't their wives. And 
uh, were actually civil towards each other. And then we look at the actual records and how vicious they, they were and how still scheming um, politicians have always been. So maybe this is just par for the course. So getting back to this idea of, of norms and norms possibly being broken, what's it like to be a teacher and, you know, like take fighting, for instance, like we were talking about earlier. I mean, I, I imagine you all still feel compelled to say the same things you've always said, right? Like, don't hit, don't fight, don't... I mean, but what's it like to say those things, but then also have that be contrasted with incidents like Greg Gianforte, which it's still alleged, I should say, but but he has apologized for it. So he, there is a kind of admission there that he did do what's being alleged, or at least partly did it. So what's that like as an educator? It's It's like you get the examples of what not to do. It's like, this is... Guys, this is a really good example of, of what, as an adult, you should not do. And a lot of kids actually realize that when, when looking at the news, when we watch current events on a daily basis and seeing that, and kids will call the adults out on that saying that's, you know, they'll actually use the term, that's ghetto, which is really funny because it's, it's a 17-year-old thinking Meaning through, that's not proper. That's, not, that's so. not proper. It's not appropriate. And it's a 17-year-old kid from the inner city that's calling out adults for acting childish. What's an example of, of students great exam- that? A great example is, is this past week, uh, Trump's speech about Manchester when he called terror- the, the attackers losers. And, and a kid just said, that just sounded so ghetto. And I'm like, yeah. And what was, the, what, was the, that. what was the student's rationale for it's calling Because he that sounded ghetto. like 13. He sounded like he was 13 years old, um, the, the, way he, the way he said it, in, instead of um, using slightly more elevated language, <laughs> kind of to Jason's point, um, just being like a 13-year-old and, and, and calling the enemy just you're a bunch of losers. Yeah. Do you, Jason, Jamie, do you have examples of, of students uh, either parroting or calling out uh, adult behavior? You know, the one student I was thinking of that antagonized another, the other student was a huge Hillary fan, and he would all the time say, that's, that's not even the point. That's not even the point of what happened. Here's what you need to look at. And he would try to call out both Trump's behavior and the other student to make try to help him understand that what had happened was completely inappropriate. But he didn't always make that connection with yeah. the other student. Yeah. I mean, we've we've talked on past episodes about, um, uh, you know, how you speak to women or about women, how you uh, talk in a bullying way, um, just the 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 idea of of learning and honoring the idea of of curiosity and and um and how those things for a lot of people feel like they're changing the the assumptions about those those ways of thinking are changing do you do you have other rules or assumptions about teaching or education that you feel have been challenged in the last few months since Donald Trump's election um that are, are not i mean they're just maybe not you you can't take them for granted as much as you could have in the past well i i'm going to say just the value of public education has been questioned. Uh, the idea of, I don't know if you saw the exchange this week with Betsy DeVos uh, in terms of state vouchers and... In front of Congress. In front of Congress, House, right? Yeah. And, and, and in that in that particular element, they were talking about LGBT students in a school in Indiana that uh, would prevent any child from attending that school that was either an LGBT student or had a member of their family that was an LGBT, LGBT student or had gender identity issues. And, you know, the the congresswoman said, you know, would you, and they were getting federal funds, would, you know, would you protect the student or would you protect the school? And Betsy's response was, 
well, we'll have to, we'll, we'll always protect the side of the parent in essence. It, it's more about the choice of school. Um, but back to that other point, the other point about talking about how do we talk about women and how do we talk to each other. I, the responsibility still falls on the educator in the classroom. I, that's the great part about being a teacher is that, that that classroom is your home. You know, it is it's it is that safe spot for those students. And you know, when when issues do come up, when when there is sexism, you know, I feel absolutely comfortable talking about those issues in my classroom. Or when a kid makes a sexist comment, you know, I'm perfectly fine stopping my class and addressing it right then and there. I I, I just feel like the if we're silent, uh, then it's okay. Um, and you have to teach those kids a lesson and you have to have a conversation and you have to bring all the kids into to explain why they feel like that would be appropriate or why would they feel that's inappropriate so that they're they're getting the dialogue and the discussion back and forth. I mean, Jamie, to put a point on it, you teach in a, in a district where a lot, a lot different from Jason's um, where, as you've noted, the student population and their families are are um, a lot more Trump supporters in Jason's district, right. um, and I get the sense that your political views don't necessarily mesh with that. True. So, what's the what? How is it different for you than what Jason just described? I it's almost not different in that in that classroom is my home, and the rules of that home don't have anything to do with politics. They have everything to do with creating an environment where students feel safe, respected, and where they can you know speak their own viewpoints without being interrupted or chastised. Yeah, you know, I mean, I will, I will say a lot of my questions have been tinged with negativity, but I wonder, you know, it, it has been said that, um, you know, Donald Trump did, did give voice to people who felt marginalized, who felt out of the mainstream. Have you, have you seen any kind of positive impact, empowerment um, in a good way um, for your students and their families um, because of the election of Donald Trump? Sure, but again, in the negative way, in, in that he has energized the opposition, and in, in like the, the whole idea of resistance. Uh, for my sake, we, we see on the news every day, we see it seems like civility is under attack, um, and not just civility, but civilization itself with, with terrorism and terrorist attacks. And so those old norms of civility are more important now than ever, and just teaching those and holding on to those. I think kids understand that, at, at least... In, in my school, um, again, being mostly Hispanic, they feel in da- they, they feel that they're being put on the spot, that they're in danger um, for whatever reason by by the Trump administration, either being deported or their families being deported. Um, it just it feels like we are under attack, and so the best way to to counter that is is to to organize to feel united. Yeah. <clears throat> on a positive note, I would say that students are now more politically engaged. Yes, especially my seniors yes. and my juniors are they're really looking at they're really looking to see how does policy impact me. And I I never would have thought four years ago that my I would have seen my students down at the women's march, or I would have seen my students at the science march. That like that the the initiative to to go forth and be part of a process has really been altered. So I think on a positive note, now we're seeing students who, who may have been like, oh, other people will take care of that for me. Mm-hmm. Now they're thinking, no, I have to take care of it for myself. Mm-hmm. Well, our podcast today is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes one day all children will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. You can make an immediate impact on that mission in Kansas City to find out how. Visit teachforamerica.org or find them on Twitter at TFA underscore KC and on Instagram at TFAKC. Recently, the New York Times featured the story of a high school senior, Maddie Runkles, at a Christian school in Maryland who was barred from walking at her school's graduation because she is pregnant. At first, officials from Heritage Academy issued 
a vague statement saying the matter was an internal issue about which much prayer and discussion has taken place. But as public attention to Runkles grew, the school's leaders dug in. Pressed by the Washington Post, Heritage Academy principal David Hobbs said Runkles had not been allowed to walk because she had been immoral in having premarital sex and the quote, best way to love her is to hold her accountable for her immorality. Runkle's case became a cause celeb for anti-abortion groups who lauded her for her decision to keep the baby while taking the school to task for punishing her. We should say, though, even as the story has made national news, teen pregnancy rates have steadily declined for girls in nearly all demographic categories over the past decade. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that in 2015, the last studied year, there were 22.3 births per 1,000 women between the ages of 15 and 19. That's a record low, according to the CDC. Still, Teen Vogue points out the U.S. leads other industrialized nations in teen pregnancy rates. Um, so I'm just curious. I wanted to to use the story of Maddie Runkles as an entree into a discussion maybe about how teen pregnancy affects, especially we have two high school teachers here, but how your schools have handled um, pre- uh, pregnancies when they arise. Jason, I know you have some reflections. <clears throat> yeah, this uh, in the past couple of school years, I've had a uh, I had a I had a student who sat right in front of me every day, came into the classroom. Every day wore a baggy sweatshirt. Uh, had no idea that the this girl was pregnant. Had no clue until a couple months ago. Walked in the classroom, I was wearing a tight-fitting shirt, and I was like, in my head, is she pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did what every teacher does. I, I waited and went to talk to another teacher and asked the question, is she pregnant? And the teacher was like, yeah, she's pregnant. So then I went up and I talked to her and the girl was like, how did you not know? And I was like, I had no idea. She goes, it's like seven months. And I'm like, I had no idea, which gets me to the point of how do our school handle it? You know, I'm a big believer that administration should tell teachers that that individual student is pregnant, mostly for emergency situations in the classroom where if something were to arise you know, we as teachers are the protectors of our students, and there should be protocol put into place. Like a to health make sure, situation. A health yeah. situation yeah. so that, you know, we're aware of it, they're aware of it, the students knew. I mean, I'm maybe I'm just blind, you know. Um, but uh, but the, the, your the, your point is there was no kind of wider systematic acknowledgement that this is no the case. discussion. This, no. this is the the plan of this is the strategic response to what mm-hmm. we should do as educators. Getting 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 the students teachers together in a meeting, going down and going through it and walking through what what would need to be what needs to be done, especially if you're in the third floor versus the first floor, where's the nearest exits. I mean, we know that, but. You know, making sure that there's another kid there who could help out, or or I can help out along the way. Is there a you know is there a consequence uh, to that for the student who's pregnant? Like, if there is not a a kind of team response, is there a consequence? Well, that's a good question. I'm not quite sure what a, what the consequence would be. Well, I mean, like, is it, what, what's the effect on the student? Probably none. Yeah. I mean, I think that I mean she probably had friends within the classroom who would be more than happy to take her care of her along the way. And maybe it's just because we're we're teachers and we act like their parents or we act like their brothers or sisters that you know we want to make sure that we can do everything we can to to make sure that they're safe. Yeah, I guess my my question is: Should there be more of a kind of community response, a kind of like circling the wagons type? Do you think that's the place of a school? You know, in in the in the in the instance of a teen pregnancy. I remember looking back at my own experience in in uh, the suburbs that if anybody got pregnant, somehow they disappeared. That you wouldn't see them anymore. Like you, 
the administration, the teachers at, at the school just um, thought it was a bad idea to have a, a pregnant girl going to high school with, with everybody else. Like they like they would set a bad example. Uh, so and when you say they disappear, where would they go? Yeah, there, there would be an alternative school that they, that they would go to. Um, I look at that now, like wow, that's 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 just not right. Um, maybe it's because I teach in an inner city school where uh, the pregnancy rates for Hispanics has always been high, and it still is higher than for any other subgroup. Um, and so we we see that, and um, the kids still go, and we work with the the student on a case by case basis to see that. Okay, you can have the baby. What can we do to, to make sure that you don't lose credit, make sure that you do still graduate, um, you know, you still get that diploma at the end? Yeah, I mean, and to be clear, you you don't work, you work at a charter school, so mm-hmm. there's not like the district, there, wouldn't, there would not be an alternative school per se. Like, I mean, you, you your school has kind of right. made, made the choice to... To hand, I mean, to handle those students and try and try to get them to continue to to go to school and graduate. Right, with with some very big successes where where students had um, had one girl a few years ago that had her baby her junior year. She graduated as a senior and recently had a, a an internship with the FBI. But then we've also had the failures too, where students they have the baby and it just for whatever reason it doesn't work out. They stop coming to school uh, and they end up dropping out. So we've we've run the gamut. We try to work with them as much as possible, but. Um, I mean, we don't have a set protocol. There's no like set plan for these kids if, if we, when we find out that they're pregnant. I mean, I don't think there's like to Jason's point, I don't think we have a, a, a information distribution either among the staff other than just word of mouth. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, I want to include you in this conversation, too. I know you teach middle school and, and um, um, as you've said before, we we started recording. You haven't had a lot of um, exact experiences dealing with actual pregnancies in your middle school setting, but uh, I guess for all three of you, is do you see any problems with with the way schools and education in general message the idea of pregnancy? Is it seen as how is it seen among students? Is it seen as a complete disaster? Is it seen as like a, a something that can be overcome? I work in a majority black school, and that's not to say, um, but we know rates are higher in in black populations and Hispanic populations than are in Caucasian populations. And I would say that. Um, at least for my students, you know, they probably know somebody that's either a cousin or a family member. I mean, my brother got a girl pregnant at 17. Like, um, you know, as far as, you know, the culture of a school goes, you know, it extends out into the environment and into the neighborhoods. And so th- they're used to the idea that teenagers get pregnant. And so, it, it then, so then, then, then it goes into the school setting, which is how do I handle that, that student? Well, we're a really small community, and we're, in essence, a pretty big family, I would say, within our kids, and that they understand what the other person is going through. There is that level of empathy. And so, so within, within my school and within the culture, the kids are there, you know, not to shame them, but to be mm-hmm. supportive of them because they understand the impact that that has on a family and on a student. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it, the same holds for your school, but then I, I find a lot of parents were teen parents themselves and mm-hmm. and it's just yeah. perpetuating the cycle and when when I meet parents that that I'm actually older than their parents I'm like oh my gosh wow that's well, something about your age too yeah <laughs> probably I had a sophomore whose parents were two years younger than me and I just kept thinking oh my god all right yeah. I could be your dad yeah and then, then right? we paused and looked at each other and we're like but Jason it's an, inter- yeah. an interesting point that it, it's happened frequently enough and while that on one hand might be unfortunate you say there is a level of of empathy for the pregnant teen um, that is in some ways um, 
I mean, putting words in your mouth, I mean, inspiring or... Uh, well, I would never say inspiring. Yeah. I think they understand the hardship that's yeah, going to yeah. come with that pregnancy over time. Uh, at least in our school, the kids will bring the babies up once they've had the babies. And so it, so they, they feel like there's still that support system. We even have a daycare within the school system uh, just you know, in case there is circumstances where you know, a child, a baby needs to be taken care of. There, there is a place for that child to go while that parent finishes school. Yeah. But I, I don't, I mean, I think sex overall is just part of the culture. Mm-hmm. It's, it's part of yeah. teenage culture. It's part of adult culture. Well, to um, read the article about Maddie Runkles, the student in Maryland who was barred from walking in her graduation because she's pregnant, um, you can find a link to that at our website as well as some more links to um, some latest st- CDC statistics, try to say that five times fast, um, about teen pregnancy. It's that time of year. If you haven't already gotten out of school, then you're close. Greg, we're sorry. Teachers, <laughs> a couple more days. A couple more days. You can make it, Greg. Teachers yeah, are looking back on the year. They take stock of the students they were able to reach and at times maybe ruefully ponder the students that they were not able to reach as much as they wanted to. To that end, The Atlantic has started a new audio series called What My Students Taught Me. These installments feature the voice of a teacher and a student years after that student has been in the teacher's class, and they both reflect on their relationship and the ups and downs they went through. The first installment released this past week is called The Student I Couldn't Stand. The teacher in this particular installment, Matthew Dix, relates the story of his first year teaching back in the late 90s, challenged by a student he still somewhat lovingly calls that red-headed demon. That student, Brandon Dorfman, now in his 20s, reflects on his behavior as a second grader and admits he was sometimes a bit tough on Mr. Dix, but says he helped season him to make him the teacher he is today. It's a typical story, fascinatingly told, with an anecdote about some raisins, part of a class incentive program gone very wrong for Mr. Dix, so I suggest you listen to it. But inspired by that idea, I wanted to give our teachers a chance today at the end of their school years is there a student they had this year or maybe in the past that um, don't want to say you couldn't stand, but maybe it made an impact on you or, reali- or helped you realize um, or helped you become a, a, a better teacher? So give each of you the floor for a couple minutes. We're not going to use the real students, na- the students' <laughs> real names, but uh, is there a student that made an impact on you this year? And tell me a story about them. We're going to go back a few years. Um, I started teaching in uh, Auth 3. Uh, so we're going to go back. We're going to we're going to fast forward eight to ten years into my career, and uh, it was a Monday. As all week starts on a Monday for us, although with golf season it rarely starts on a Monday. And I go around my room and I ask my kids, "How was your weekend?" And so we're and again, I just want to remind the viewers that I work in a predominantly black school, and we're going around the room. This is one of my favorite classes for storytelling. In fact, there was one kid in the class that I waited to the very end. Because I wanted to hear his weekend last because it was just, it was going to be this big to do. So we go around the room and we get to this girl and I say, How was your weekend? And she was like, Friday night, you know, we had a game. And then, you know, Saturday night, I was, it was a late night and I couldn't sleep and I was, I was sleeping on the couch. And all of a sudden, you know, I woke up because I heard a fight out the window. And she, and she said, I, she got up, she opened the blinds, and there were two men fighting in the street. And there was a crowd of people around them. And one man pulled out a gun and shot the other one dead. And I paused. And I was like, what did you do? And she said, I rolled over and went back to sleep. And I said, how did you go back to sleep? And she said, this wasn't the first time it's happened. And for the audience out there, 
I'm six foot one, white, blue eyed. I grew up in Northwest Indiana from a middle class family and I went to Catholic schools K-12. And here I am sitting in a room with 28 students and I couldn't believe what I had heard. I, I grew up what I like to call a Rockwellian lifestyle. You know, we had dinner, mom, dad, and the three brothers. We sat down every night, uh, Christmas and the holidays. We had our traditions. Nothing ever changed. Every birthday party, every family member came over. And it was just, there was this idea that, you know, you were always together and you were kind of sheltered from the outside world. And I didn't fully understand the gravity of the situation in which I work until I heard that story. Because moving forward, it's completely altered my perspective of the kids that I teach. Because I always felt like you had to be really strict and you had to be really strong and you had to hold them accountable for everything and that no matter how hard life is, you can get through it. But then you hear stories like that and you realize that the that these kids aren't just caring, you know, and they're not just impoverished students in terms of money or food. There's so much emotional poverty that goes along with their lives. And, you know, six years later now or seven years later, you know, every time I look at a kid, I, I think to myself, and this is what she taught me, what is your story? What is your background? What are you coming to me with? Because if I don't think that way, if I, and if I don't open myself up to that student or those students to learn about them, then there's a piece of them that I'm not going to be able to reach, and it's going to make my job as a teacher harder. So that story and that lesson uh, changed who I am, you know, not only with my students, but with my friends as well. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing, Jason, Jamie. Well, I don't have to go back very far for this one. He and I ended the school year together. He is a young man that joined me during the first quarter of school. So he came in in the middle of it. He didn't start with us at the very beginning. He came in in the middle. And so we had several meetings with parents on, you know, what their expectations were for for him and what, you know, maybe we could do to help him because he was coming in low affect, not very, well, not passing grades. And so we tried to discuss with them and with the young man, what do you like to do? What do you want to do? And to put a little context on him, he is probably six foot one or two and over 230 pounds, big kiddo you know, could be strong asset to the football team, which is what he really wanted to do. So we tried to put a plan in place and work with him. <clears throat> and he started off pretty strong. Um, one thing that parents talked with us about was that sometimes he would operate on a six-year-old level. This is a 14-year-old who's six foot one, 230 pounds, that sometimes might operate at a six-year-old level. We're talking won't order his food at a restaurant completely shuts down at therapy sessions. And they wanted us, in essence, to fix him, to help him, to do what we could. So we started off the year pretty good. He was doing some work for me, mostly just wanted him to try to participate. He didn't have a lot of friends. After he transferred into our district, his sister, his twin sister, actually transferred out. And so I think he lost a big support system with that because she was really excited that he was going to move into the district and go to school with her. And then I think parents pulled her out to a different district. And so I think that kind of swept the rug out from under him because as soon as that happened, he was that six-year-old again. 
he became nonverbal. Anything that he would comment was opposing the norm or opposing classmates. He flat out said, I don't like English. I don't need to do anything in this class. And by fourth quarter, he was five, ten minutes late every class to my class. And sometimes he would forget his books or his workbook or his notebook and would have to go back to get him spending another five minutes, well, avoiding the class that he hated. And so it took a lot of reflection for me. And it got to the point where the, the straw that broke the camel's back was him, this, this big kiddo, strong, smart. He could do the work. He chose not to. And that's what was so hard for me. So that's where I had to reflect. This kid digressing, ultimately, to sitting in the back corner and pulling his head and his, his arms into his shirt and just sitting back there trying to hide. What can I do to reach him? And as a teacher, you have a ton of resources in your, your pedagogical bag. What can I do to reach this kid? Well, I'm 6 through 12 certified, so I don't really know exactly how to reach a 6-year-old in order to try to get him to pull, come out of his shell and come back to being the 14-year-old that he is. And so ultimately, there was the reflection piece for me, like how can I get this kid involved? But what it came down to was me just one-on-one -on -one with him. What do you need to be successful right now? What have you forgotten? What can I provide you? And it would take me almost being stubborn <laughs> to wait him out because he would sit there and just stare at his desk. And it took me showing, I hope that's what it came across as, like care, like what can I provide you? What do you need to do? What can I allow you to do to get you to participate? Do you need a pencil? Do you need to get your notebook? A slight head nod? Okay, let's do that. Let's get it going. And I also learned that I had to really control my frustration because I like the kid. I like him in the hallways when he talks about the music that he loves. I like him in the classroom when he comes in with a big smile on his face. I don't like when he shuts down. And anytime we did academic work, that's when he shut down. And that's what I'm there for is the academic piece. Yes, I, I should be making connections with them. And yes, I should be making relationships with them. But my goal is to get them to be better writers. At least that's you know what the class was for. And to have him shut down like that, it was just like, what am I doing wrong, you know? And so there was a lot of reflection that happened this year <laughs> and a lot of, okay, calling him out, can't do that. And where did you, where did you end the year with him? Um, unfortunately, personally, he was still telling me stories, telling me the music that he liked. You know, he would come up to me, hey, did you listen to that new album or did you listen to that new song? But unfortunately, academically, he did not make improvements, and he actually had to sit out of our field trip because of a refusal of leaving his cell phone in his locker. So personal level, where we were good. Academic level, he just wasn't ready to participate. Still made an impact on you, sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> Greg, you got a story? Uh, what I've been reflecting on are the kids that that we have or I have failed in a way that um, being in a charter school, kids have the, the and their parents have the 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 choice to um, transfer out, go to a, another public school, or kids sometimes just drop out, which has been the case. And and um, 
there's been a couple of students in the last couple of years that I think that they came into class and they were about as unmotivated as you could possibly be, being that that teenage slug. But not just not just unmotivated, um, like almost you know not not defiant, but they weren't there to work. Obviously, they 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 were there just to to hang out. And they would start getting surly if you asked them to even maybe slightly kind of participate, doing do do something. And I remember just trying all the different tricks that I've got. I mean, the, there's that book, you know, "Teach Like Your Hair's On Fire." I think if I walked in with my hair on fire, I don't think the kid would have cared, you know. And so then, what do you do? I mean, maybe that's the million dollar question: How do you motivate the unmotivated? How do you motivate the kid that really just doesn't care, even though you think this is the most exciting class in the world that everybody should? obviously be interested in this because this is American government and this pertains to you. And so, of course, you should be highly motivated and interested and engaged. So why are you not engaged and, and just racking my brain? So I, I don't know. That's the million-dollar question. And, and if I could figure out the answer to that, um, I, could, I could make bank. What did you you know, yeah. uh, what did you, what do you think you took away from, from dealing with those students? That's, that's – uh, again, I'm still struggling with that because, uh, like I said, there's those two students, um, two or three students that, that in the last couple of years that I have or the system, it, that our system has failed and they transferred, that they weren't able to make it. So they transferred out um, or maybe even just dropped out. And so I wonder that what did we not provide for them um, as caring as we are, as family oriented as, as we are? What what did we not do for, for those kids? Mm-hmm. I had a colleague who used to um, – Call students who were hard to motivate aggressively passive, <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like that's, you guys have all dealt with right. aggressively passive that's students right. before. Uh, well, we end each episode with a segment we call "Kids These Days." Our teachers tell us about the things trending among their students over the past week. It's a window into the sometimes strange world of teachers. Though we sh- should say two of our teachers are now on summer break. <laughs> Um, Sorry, Greg. So they, yeah, it's coming. You can make the, it. the one who is not is Greg, if we haven't pointed that out yet. Um, so, but they might be able to pull a kids these days from a, a week or two ago. Um, so, but Greg, since you are still in school, yeah. we'll, start yeah. with, we'll start with you. Uh, well, since I deal mostly with upperclassmen, the, the whole big thing recently is, is what are you doing this summer? And mostly, where are you working this summer? Uh, trying to find that, that good summer job. Um, working they're asking around. each other this. They're, they're asking each other this, you know, talking about it. Hey, what are you doing this summer? You, where are you going to work? Either at the, the local amusement park uh, or at the stadium or the zoo or, or whatever. And what... Um, it, it's kind of funny to see the pockets of where our kids work because we end up having like a bunch of kids will work together at a, at a pizza place. Um, there'll be like a gaggle. One kid will get in. Yeah, and then, and then they the, then they got an in right. Or there's a gaggle at the local McDonald's, you know, or at the uh, at the amusement park. We got like five kids that work at the zoo. So it's just it's kind of funny to see how they they separate out and and they kind of come together to you know with their own groups of friends. Are there are there places of employment that are particularly coveted that that students want to work at? Yeah, you, usually the uh, the river market area, the uh, kind of like the farmer's market, they really like that, it, it seems like. I've had several students over the years that really like that that gig. I guess it's it's kind of fun working working area up there. No, it's funny that you mentioned the, they kind of congregate in one. So I had a friend in high school who got a job at this ice delivery company, mm-hmm. uh, which turned out to be a great job. And then and he and it, was, it paid well. He talked about how you, like, you're outside, you know, getting kind of exercise, throwing ice around. And so, like three or four of us, 
apply for jobs there after he got a job there. And so there was like a group of five or yeah. six of us who were working there. It's funny. It reminds me of that. Uh, well, Jamie, you've been out of school for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, already a couple of weeks, Greg. How does that sound? <laughs> um, but you still have some some things about the end of the school year that your kids were talking about. Oh, yeah. The biggest thing, and it, it <laughs> was fidget spinners. Yes, that has not died down. <laughs> that has that, not yes, died it, down. And I'm sure through social media, everyone knows what those are. But it got to the point where they were trading and who wanted to carry the metal one with only two bearings in it. And I actually got a fidget spinner for a going away present from one of my eighth graders. And uh, are you using it? It is still at school. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jason, you are also out of school, but um, just very recently. Um, so what are your kids into or what were they into before school let out? Well, as far as those spinners go, I was why is why do they have my grandfather's electric razor? Because that's what it looked like to me. It had the three circles and they were spinning <laughs> oh, it around. Right. And I was like, yeah, the yeah. old razors. Yeah. Uh, this was my 14th class that I graduated. And so kids this week are graduating from high school. Um, in fact, as soon as we finish, I'm going to two grad parties after this to, uh, so to go celebrate with the students who accomplished their high school goals. And, uh, and now they're just in that, that three-month pause of, of, I see the freedom. I see it. There's a light. The light's there. I'm, I'm going to it. I'm going to it. It's not death. No, it's it's life, and so they're all thinking about what they need for college and getting everything ready and making sure that all, all their scholarships are are together and they're getting ready to go live and go study. Well, that will do it for this episode of No Wrong Answers. Uh, Greg, hang in there. Just a couple more days. You can do it. Almost uh, there. <laughs> we should say Teach for America Kansas City is the underwriter of this podcast, but No Wrong Answers does retain total editorial control what our teachers say. Are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for, we will have our weekly extra credit segment drop on Thursday, so look for that in your feed. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, keep the conversation going. Thanks to our teachers this week, Greg Brenner, Jamie Myers, Jason Staliga. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio. I'm Kyle Palmer. It's summer still. Remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs>